Welcome to Truth Matters Church and our expository study of Revelation. Most of us are familiar with Jesus' statement, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. But does it really mean what we think it does? What was the true message and meaning in this phrase? Today we'll look across Scripture in an effort to better understand this warning to the church in Laodicea. And we'll wrap up our study of the letters to the seven churches found in Revelation. Here is Pastor Alex. So if you haven't already, if you can go ahead and have your material ready. The title of our study today is, I Stand at the Door and Knock. I want to ask us some questions. How many of us are familiar with that? I stand at the door and knock. Do you know what that means? Let me ask it this way. How is it being used in evangelism today? Something along the lines, Jesus loves you. He has a wonderful plan for you. He's knocking at the door of your heart. Let him in. Something along those lines. Is that how we've kind of generally understood it? That's what I've been exposed to. Is that what Jesus meant in this statement? We'll find out. And that's the title of our study today. Our Lord uttered these words to the believers in Laodicea. And he said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. What was he, what, why, why did he say these words to this people? And what was he communicating not only to them, but to the churches? So that's going to be the, the theme and the title of our message, which we will uncover today as we wrap up this letter. This will be the last time we will look at this map uh, because we will be concluding our study into this seventh letter to the seven churches in Revelation And we are looking at now this letter written to Laodicea there, uh, located the southernmost part of what's now modern-day Turkey on this map. And as as a reminder there, when John got this great vision, as you can see, there was Patmos off the coast there. And the seven churches are, you know, somewhat in the same region. But what we'll do is we will read our scripture reading. We'll read this letter in its entirety for the last time, and then we will pick it up right in verse 20 when Jesus made this statement. So let us get familiar once again with this letter. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. Because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. To the churches. Let's pick it up, shall we, at the top 
of verse 20. Our Lord Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. And as I mentioned in our introductory comments, this is a go-to verse in a lot of contemporary evangelism in wanting to evangelize our community and to others. And we'll say these very words, the Lord Jesus, he wants to have a relationship with you. He's knocking on your heart, let him in. And as we're exercising good disciplines, I'm going to put a pause on that for now. And here's why. You know, door or thura in the Greek. I've looked at every reference of thura. Would it surprise you that not once was it speaking of the heart or the mind? Not once. If we're going to stay true to our disciplines, how come all of a sudden door is now heart if it's never been used that way anywhere in the scripture? Another reason why I'm putting a pause on any understanding or interpretation that Jesus is knocking at the door of our hearts. And that is when we learn from the Gospels and Jesus addressing his enemies, he made this profound statement, and we're all familiar with this. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me drags him and I will raise him at the last day. Our Lord didn't say, well, you can't come to me unless I knock on the door of your heart and then you open it and let me in. He's like, you can't come to me unless the Father drags you to me. It has nothing to do with knocking. Yeah, can we say that the Father <laughs> figured to be knock us in the head and dragged us to the Son? Hey, I, 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 can, I can get comfortable with that. So this, this idea or this notion that Jesus is knocking on the hearts of, of people, I think it's an overstretch if you're trying to make that fit with what is being said here, which begs the question, what does he mean by this statement? I stand at the door and knock. So let's exposit this further. Jesus said, behold, I stand. I, in the first person. Jesus, the glorified Christ, is the one who is personally standing somewhere. At the door and knock, door, again, thura in the Greek, it's the entrance of something. It could be, you know, the, the thura or the, the tomb that holds the dead body, the entrance of the tomb. You know how our Lord, when he rose from the dead and the stone was moved, but the cover or the, the entrance of that tomb is the thura. It can be tomb, thura can be temple, the entrance into the temple. If the city had gates, it could be, that could be the thura, or it could be even the door of the kingdom. But to understand what our Lord means by him personally standing at the door and knock. This is what I like to do. I'd like to say, when was at the door used? That phrase. And see where that leads us. And another thing I want to do is, when did our Lord talk about knocking? And see where that leads us. And then we'll get behind what he means by this statement. So with that, let's look at the mentions of at the door. In the Old Testament, when you look at the phrase, at least as it's translated in our English translations, is at the door. It was only mentioned two times in the Old Testament. One time it was literal, like literally at the door. So I'm not, I'm not worried about that. And one time it was used figuratively. And I want to see what that informs us. And we're familiar of this story. 
It's when, it's in the story of Cain and Abel's offering. When the time came when Cain and Abel were to bring an offering before God. And we're familiar with the story. God favored Abel's offering over Cain's. And Cain became very angry. Let's pick it up from there in Genesis 4, verse 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you, but you must master it. And I'm going to ask us again the question. When we have read this in the past, and sin is crouching at the door, how many of us already went at the door of our heart? I did. Again, the question is, is that what is being communicated here? So with that, I want to look at this further. God told Cain, he says, if you do not do well, sin is crouching, Hebrew, rabats, at the door. Rabats is a Hebrew verb, and it means to stretch oneself out, to lie down, to lie down, to lie stretched out. Now, how many of us have pictured sin is crouching at the door like this? Kind of like this, like, ooh, that's sin. It's crouching at the door, and it's looking. It, it could mean that. I'm not saying it, it isn't. It could mean that. But it also means to lie, rest in place. Here's something. To lie helpless. According to Strong's, Rabatz is a primitive root to crouch on all four legs. I have it highlighted here. Like a recumbent animal. How many of us have heard the word recumbent animal? It is a word or a verb to describe something that lies down to make rest and sit. And in some cases, even helpless. What I mean is this. Uh, you see these other pictures? You know, like, uh, have you ever seen like a dog, for example, just lie it out on all fours, just kind of on their belly and they're all fours? That's robots. You know what's also robots? And some of us have maybe experienced this if we had pets when you put them down and they're just laid out and there's nothing they can do. They're kind of helpless. That's a recumbent animal. So sin could mean all, down on all fours and ready to pounce, but it can also mean that it's just kind of... It's kind of just stretched out and kind of helpless unless you give it life in a way. So what I want to point out from this passage is sin is personified. Sin is crouching at the door. It's personified. And, and we're familiar with Paul's letters and in particular Romans when he too personified sin in Romans 7. When he talked about the inner struggle within him. And he said, what wretched man that I am. I want to do well, but whenever I want to do well, sin is right there. So I'm at odds. But he's talking to sin and he's personifying it. There's as if there's two Pauls. One Paul that wants to do right, and then there's the other Paul that wants to do wrong. But when he does wrong, he's confirming that the Word of God is true and that he is wretched. And sin, understanding from Genesis 4, is described as lying, resting in place, even helpless. And God warned Cain, sin is desires for him, but he must master it. What's it? Sin. More specifically, his sinful nature. So in the Old Testament, when we look at at the door, and kind of looking at the story of Cain, if we personify sin in us, and we consider it though, but do you know sin doesn't have life 
unless you give into it and give it life. It's lying kind of helpless in you. It wants you. It's like, hey, choose me. But it can't do it on its own unless you agree to it because it's personified. Meaning we will never be perfect. But did you know if you view sin, remember, remember Paul says if sin is dead, I'm dead to sin. That's the perfect, like, it's robots. How can I live in it any longer? And that sin that's in me it still wants to have me and consume me. But unless I say yes to it, then it has you and it, it desired you and it now has you. Meaning we do have a choice on giving into sin or not. That doesn't mean we're never going to sin, but we don't need to give in to its impulses and desires. Rather, look at it as a recuse or a recumbent nature in me. So it's not only instructive to Cain, that warning, but it's instructive for all mankind. We need to be careful too. In Cain's case, that sin nature in him says, go kill your brother. You're better than him. And God warned Cain, don't listen to that sinful nature in you because it's desire to, and it wants to master you. What happened in Ken's, Cain's case? That desire and impulse, he gave into it. So that it's no longer like a recumbent kind of state. It is now sprung to life, if you will, and it manifested itself in the murdering of his brother. But that's the only reference, at least in the Old Testament, when at the door was, was referenced figuratively, not literally, and it dealt with the sinful nature. Got that? Now let's look to the New Testament for at-the-door references. In the New Testament, at-the-door, there, there was more mentions than the old. There was, it was mentioned nine times. Five literally. Right now I'm not looking for the literal, because we know what at-the-door means. If you're at-the-door, you're at-the-door of something, at the entrance of something. So I'm not going to go through the scriptures of that. But if it's not used in that way, and it's more figurative, I want to look at those examples. So it was used four times figuratively in the New Testament, including Revelation, meaning apart from this letter, only three other times was at the door mentioned and used figuratively. And two of them are in the same account. I don't want to read that. And we're familiar with this. And it it has to do, uh, or this account was at the Olivet Discourse, when our Lord gave this profound prophecy concerning end times, even his return. So let's read the other two mentions. And this was in the parable of the fig tree. We'll pick up Matthew's account first. Chapter 24, verse 32. Our Lord says there, Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too... When you see all these things, recognize that he is near, right at the door. And in the Mark's parallel account, let's pick it up in chapter 13, verse 28. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so you, too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near, right at the door. At the door of what? Anyone want to take a guess? Speak up. His return. At the door of his return. At the door is at the cusp of his return. When you see these things happening, happening, he tells his disciples, recognize that he, speaking about himself, 
is near, he is right at the door. So we have at the door in the Old Testament, sinful nature. We have at the door in the New Testament of his return. So far, no heart. He's not knocking on any doors of any hearts so far. And I want to go to the third and final mention of at the door in the New Testament. And that was in James' epistle in his exhortation in chapter 5. We'll pick it up in verse 8. James writes there, You too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. I'm going to ask the question again. What's at the door referring to? And I'm going to give you a hint. It's the same as the parable of the fig tree. His return. At the door in the New Testament speaks of his return. At the door, return. His return. I want to get in a little conjecture here. We've just established that at the door is in reference to Jesus' return. That's what it is. But what about our principles, our our rules of engagement? You shall interpret Scripture with literal fulfillment. Are we saying he's not standing at the door of something? It's just all figurative? So we know that at the door is in reference to his return, and that's true. But if we're going to stay true to our rules of engagement, we must interpret it with a literal fulfillment. I'm going to submit to us, he's also standing at the door of something. Literally. Here's a spoiler, okay? You know how Hades has a door or gates? Would it surprise you that heaven has a door? And here's a spoiler. When we pick it up in chapter 4, the very first verse, John says, After these things and looked, and behold, a door standing in heaven. And it's open. So here's the conjecture. Yeah, at the door when we're looking at the lessons of the parables and we're, or the parable of the fig tree, when we're looking at the warning that J, uh, James gave concerning the judge is standing at the door, that's a clear reference to his return. Did you know that the door that's in heaven, that when the time comes, that Jesus will actually go through the doors of heaven to come to earth? It's tied to his return. In order for him to come, first he will stand at the door And then when it's his time, he's going to come through the doors of heaven and come back to earth. He's standing at heaven's door, but he hasn't come yet because it's not his time yet. And until then, he is knocking at the door. Now, I don't want to get too spiritual here, but when I think, I was like, wow, how does that knocking look like? Could you imagine if Jesus is at the door of heaven and before he comes, he knocks at the door of heaven? You know how those knockings can play itself out? How about wars and rumors of wars? How about calamities? How about the evils? How about, he says, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there's pestilences in in various places. In my particular case, that knock from heaven was September 11 when our country got attacked. For me, figuratively, the Lord knocked on heaven's door and let me know this is a crazy world and place that we live in. And it got me to wake up and search for answers and truth beyond this life. So it's plausible that these knockings from heaven's door could be exactly how he described the world events leading up to his return. Until it is too late, no more knocking. 
then he's going to come, and then there's going to come a time when he's going to shut the door. So with this in mind now, so uh, sorry to spoil you if you thought it was the door of your heart in that way. With this in mind, I want us to look to the Gospels now. And, and did our Lord talk about knocking? And lo and behold, it was in another parable taught by our Lord, and it was in Luke's Gospel concerning a wedding feast. So let's look at Luke 12. The setting here, this was in the great Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is addressing his disciples. And here's what he instructed them. He said, be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third, and finds them, so blessed are those slaves. But be sure of this, that if the head of the household had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. And I want to point out a few things from this parable. So this parable of readiness was addressed to his disciples. So the disciples are his slaves in this parable. And they were instructed to be like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding feast. And when the master returns from that wedding feast and knocks, they were to open the door to him. And I want to point out an important timing of this knocking. This knocking will be after Jesus returns from a wedding feast. We get, we'll, we'll keep that as a placeholder. So this parable, as far as the timing of this knocking, will be after the master returns from a wedding feast. We'll learn what that is as we progress in this study. So this knocking in this parable is not going to happen until after a wedding feast that he came back from. And when that time comes, they're to open the door to him. After this knocking, or and this knocking, he says in the second watch. You know, second watch is between 9 and 12. You can split up the watches of the night from 6 to 9 is the first, uh, 6 to 9 p.m., is the first watch, 9 to midnight is the second watch, midnight to 3 is the third watch, 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. is the fourth watch of that night. He says whether he comes in the second watch or even the third, when that knocking happens, open the door. So that's between 9 p.m. to 3 a.m. And he says concerning that, he goes, no one knows the day or hour of that. And we'll look at that wedding feast or the more onto the wedding feast as we progress in this study, and that was actually towards the end. So we're not going to get there for a while. But for now, I want to amplify this parable for us. Remember, he's saying he stands at the door and knocks, and we looked at, at the door, and we know that it was, there was a time it was associated with the sin, sin or sinful nature personified. We know that at the door is associated with his return. We know that at the door, that there's an actual door in heaven. And now we're looking at more into examples where Jesus is described as knocking. So we're going to go back to this parable and hopefully by inserting the subjects of the parable, it'll make it a little more clear. So let's read it once again, inserting the subjects. 
He goes, be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when Jesus returns from the wedding feast. So that his slaves may immediately open the door to Jesus when he, Jesus, comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master, Jesus, will find on alert when he, Jesus, comes. He says, truly I say to you that he, who's he, will gird himself to serve who? And have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them, whether he comes in the second watch or even the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. The reason why I put those question marks, I didn't want to make it too easy for us. But Jesus says something kind of odd. He says, I say to you that he will gird himself. Who's he? To serve. He will gird himself to serve. And have them recline at the table. And will come on wait on them. So who's going to gird themselves to come and serve? And, will even, uh, to, and have them recline at the table to even come and wait on them. And whether that person comes in the second watch or even the third and finds them, so blessed are those slaves. I kind of gave the answer. You said it, Jeremy, speak up. Exactly. Look, now I put in the answer. Let's read it one more time. Pick it up at verse 37. Blessed are those slaves whom the master Jesus will find on alert when Jesus comes. Truly I say to you that our Lord Jesus will gird himself and our Lord Jesus will serve his slaves. And have them, his slaves, recline at the table. And Jesus will come up and wait on them. Whether he, Jesus, comes in the second watch or even the third and finds them, his slaves, so blessed are those slaves. So here's a truth mystery. Here's the truth. Jesus will appear to certain slaves during the end times between 9 and 3 a.m. And no one knows the day or the hour of that. What will be their time zone? He will knock on their door, and did you know our Lord will even serve them a meal? Wait, aren't the slaves, aren't the slaves the one who's supposed to serve him? But here's a truth mystery. Our Lord will come to certain slaves in the end times. After he returns from a wedding feast, he will gird himself to serve. And when the, he knocks on the door, whoever those slaves are, he says, open the door. And he says, and I will dine with him. And I will also have him recline at the table. And I will serve him a meal. Did not our Lord serve the disciples a meal? And he had fish on, on the beach? Wash. He said, hey, go catch, you catch some fish. Bring it here. And our Lord ate with them. And I'm also drawn to after our Lord rose from the dead. And the disciples were hiding and the doors were shut. And our Lord Jesus came among them and he said, peace be with you. And he appeared to them. The doors were shut to them. But in this, his slaves, he's not going to go through the door that way. He's going to knock. And he says, open the door and let him in. Going back to now verse 20. When Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. I believe there's a dual, there's a dual truth here. If we were to tie in Cain's account, I'm inclined to believe that this is a reference of Jesus personally and standing at the door and warning them of their, or bringing to their attention of their sinful nature. Because in context, remember the Laodiceans, they believe that they were rich. They believe that they have treasures and they believe that they can see. But in truth, in our Lord's assessment and evaluation of them, because they are poor, wretched 
pitiful, blind, and naked. So when he says, I stand at the door and knock, this could very well be a reference to them not recognizing their sin and sinful nature. It's a warning. But if we were to tie in the parable of the fig tree and the marriage feast, I'm also convinced that this was a reference to his return. And that in and of itself comes with mystery. If you were to ask me, when he says, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. I also believe that this is an end times prophecy that will apply to certain slaves just as it applied to his disciples by which Jesus, he says, I stand personally. He will make a personal visit at a day and hour between nine and three when no one thinks he will. Some of you are already not thinking he will. He will. So here's the translation. This is a call as far as verse 20. This is a call for the Laodiceans to repent of their sinful deeds, turn to Christ in saving faith for true riches and true eyes to see, lest they be shut out the kingdom when the king arrives from his long journey. We didn't get that by just reading verse 20 on the surface, did we? But what did we do? We looked to the scripture. It took us to Cain, took us to a couple of his parables, and even James. So when he says, I stand at the door and knock, there's a lot of things going on in that statement. And it means all that, or implicates all that. So finally to the promise. Verse 21, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And we've covered this in past studies. When we see that phrase, he who overcomes, we know that generally that's a universal truth that extends beyond the seven churches. Meaning, the promise that follows here in this statement, it's beyond the seven churches and is more universal and applies to the believers of Jesus Christ. He says, I will grant, and we've covered this statement in part of the I wills of the Lord Jesus. When he says, I will grant, another way to say it, out of his own free will, out of his own volition, he's going to grant him who overcomes to sit down with him on his throne as he also overcame and sat down with his father on his throne. So we know that Jesus will personally grant believers to sit down with him on his throne. And that throne specifically is the throne of David. When the throne of David is established on earth, believers will be granted permission to sit on our Lord Jesus' throne. And I, I mentioned this also in past studies. When the Lord Jesus comes to his very own creation and establishes his kingdom on earth, and establishes the throne of David. And now it's here. Our Lord is here. And while He is here, and we're in that period, He will grant. I can imagine us getting in line, like a theme park. <laughs> and then I think He might have some sort of dash pass, or what do you call it? What is it called now in Disneyland? Lightning Lane. Lightning lane. <laughs> and be like, Lord, look, my head got cut off for you. All right, you can come to the front. 
because he said he also overcame and sat down with his father on his father's throne. And I'm not going to belabor the point. The throne in heaven, the throne on high, the most high throne is the father's throne. You remember it has wheels, remember? It's mobile because that throne in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth, will come down as part of the new Jerusalem and the father's here. That's not the throne of David. The throne of David was given by the Father to the Son. I don't think we're going to, or I don't, I don't see it yet, that we're going to be allowed to sit on his Father's throne. Maybe that's just the Son. But the Son will let us sit on his throne, as he also overcame and sat down on his Father's throne. So I don't know if there's going to be a line for the Father's throne. <laughs> he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. For the final time, this isn't just a catchy phrase. In all of these letters, these warnings extends beyond the seven churches. These warnings are applicable to the churches that follow, even to us now and even to the church at the end. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He can also say, listen and obey. Listen, hear, repent. Or listen, believe, repent, or else. And this call to repent and believe is not just for the unbelieving world, but sadly, it's also for the dead members of his body, the Christian church. It's as if this dead church, this first century, is an example of many dead churches that follows, who identify as a Christian church, but just like these Laodiceans, what they share is that they didn't see their true, utter sinfulness, their true need for Christ. And if we repent and believe the gospel and its entire message, so do you hear the message? Do you hear the call of our Lord? Do you hear Him appeal, even not only to these seven churches, but even beyond that? Do you hear Him appeal to us? Yes. Because we repented and believed the gospel and its entire message. So we have ears to hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. And the privilege of that, being in the faith, is for us to know what's in store for us when our King and Savior finally arrives. Thus again, this call to repent and believe is not just limited to Laodicea, but all churches that follows. So that takes us to the end of chapter 3 and the conclusion of our study into the seven letters to the seven churches. What's going to happen from here is once Jesus made this final warning, and we get to chapter 4, which is a, a clean break, then John was taken up into heaven. And he starts to give us this insight into this majestic scene in heaven. So in our next study, we're going to pick up in chapter 4, and see what did John see there. And because we have the Spirit of Christ, we can at least have insight and some understanding into what John saw in this vision. And the goal of that is to know what's in store for us, who believe, and what's in store when our Lord comes to reward those who love Him. It's been an amazing and very enlightening study as we've gone verse by verse through Jesus' letters to the seven churches found in Revelation. 
Every letter contained valuable truths applicable both to the understanding of the Lord's return as well as our very lives today. If you happen to have missed any of our previous messages from this study, you can find all of them on our website at truthmatterschurch.org, truthmatterschurch.org, or simply look us up on Sermon Audio. We also encourage you to check out our 24-hour ad-free stream of expository Bible teaching, scripture reading, and much more. It's available now at truthmattersradio.com, truthmattersradio.com. Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church.